This episode is brought to you by Common Good, a design team on a mission to make the world a simpler and smarter place. How? By taking an approach which puts people at the center of their design process. Common Good are a strategy-led, human-centered design studio partnering with people and businesses who want to make a positive impact in the world. Want to know more about how they use service and experience design to make sense of the world? Go to common-good.co, where you can find out about what they're up to with partners like Canyon Bicycles, the United Nations, and the UK National Health Service. Or say hello on Twitter, at ComGoodCo. They'd love to hear from you. I think you can be in business and not be an asshole. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say it. Even worse than sex. They'd rather talk about sex than talk about money. And there are these people with some really, really deep ethics and, and really uh, connected sense to people around them. And that's in London where that's not supposed to happen. Hey, welcome back. This is At Your Service, episode six. When we last spoke, our team had just created a three-part research plan for getting to know people better through interviews and surveys. In this episode, I'll share where we stand with that plan. If you're asking yourself, research plan, interviews, what? You might be listening to this story out of order. Go back to episode one and start from the beginning. For the rest of us, here we go. Research results in three, two, one. Remember the plan we made building off the massive amount of desk research we did? Three-part user research uh, program, one that looks at... Research plan part one, interview business owners about giving back to the community. Research plan part two, online survey asking people how they feel about a community loan service. Research plan part three, interview people who are currently experiencing poverty or have experienced it in the past about the clever habits they've developed to make the most of their finances. Let's go through the progress we've made on these three fronts, one by one. First, the business owners. We reached out to people and asked for a little bit of their time. This is all the kind of to-do pile. So this is all the customers' guitars in cases usually and You're about to hear from Neil, who owns a brewery in London, and Jam, who manages a cafe also in London. Jeremy, who owns a used camera shop in Manchester. Jack, who owns a guitar repair shop also in Manchester. And Sean, a coffee roaster in Salford. Really old, that's a really old, rare 60s bass. Cool. Never going to see one of those again, definitely. And then we get all kinds of things. So there is one thing, which is like... Now, we don't just go into the interview and wing it. We created a list of questions. That's a pretty reasonable way to prep for an interview. And we also created a few activities. Activities, like the ones I'm about to describe, are one of those little twists on things that designers tend to do. Yes, an interview with a list of questions is good enough, but you can make it more fun, more interesting, and also get better insights if you come prepared with little activities. I've seen sketching activities or asking people to evaluate ideas by laying them out on a physical map. One of my favorite activities is called a card sort. So in the business owner interviews, we actually use three card sorts to help anchor <laughs> um, the conversation. I have a bunch of cards, which I'd like you to rate from I love this idea okay. to no, I hate this idea. Okay. And you can just put them down on the table. One card sort was all about different ways of giving back. So the interviewee gets this little deck of like 15 cards or so. And each card says something like give away products for free or offer workshop space. 
The interviewee has to place the cards on a continuum from I love this idea all the way to nope, don't like it at all. So I can look at them, yeah? Yeah, don't like this idea, love this idea. Coffee, computer, Wi-Fi, space rental, offering resources for free is definitely always like, always will give help to people who need it. Hire unemployed people, well that's great. We already hire a lot of ex-cons, we train a lot of ex-cons and young teenagers from bad backgrounds, it's very interesting. You can talk, talk through as you're doing it. <laughs> um, well, I think that's, um, as far as a business-to-business loans are concerned, uh, I think if you have the capacity, I mean, it just makes, actually it makes good business sense, to be honest. If you've got the money, frankly, it's earning you bugger all if you're sat on it in the bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, use that money to provide growth for somebody else, which will pay back in all kinds of dividends. Yes, it might pay back a better interest for starters, but it might, just that business relationship that you're forming there, choose the right businesses that you're lending to and you've already got an amazing relationship to build on there so then love the idea because I know that some people get into a lot of problems with borrowing when they shouldn't be only problem in this country is this country doesn't teach you about minus negative money teaches you that overdraft is facilitated you know this whole country is built on loaning things and people become lazy with it because they you know they don't live within their means and this comes from a society of making you want more Offer sliding scale prices. Um, so 50 pence for a quarter of a cup of coffee, a pound for a half a cup of coffee, and two pounds for a full cup of coffee. I guess what you're meaning is offering 50p to somebody who can't afford it, a pound to somebody who is a little bit better off, and two pounds to somebody who can really afford it. For the same item. Yeah, for the same item. Mm-hmm. Um, in this business, uh, used camera retail, uh, we find that probably 90% of people expect to um, look for a discount, ask for a discount, mm. ask for a deal, ask for something more. Mm. Um, and it's a pleasure when people don't. And that's when, very often, we're more inclined to come back to this card, which is offering goods and services for free. The second card sort was all about possible ways to structure the service. Would it be a weekly Skype call or a web-based community? Weekly in-person meetup, definitely. Staff training, definitely. You're, you're doing it to connect with other people. So if you're on that platform, yeah, I'd be fine with that. Yeah. And this is Skyping who? Customers or other business, business owners. owners? Right. Okay. I think that Bearing in mind I don't have a a great experience of networking um, or meeting up with other businesses in person, um, it, that goes on the thanks, but I don't see the, the great point of it. The third card sort was about understanding how business owners would like to be recognized for their community-oriented actions. A poster for the shop, a write-up in the local news. Weekly support Skype, I love it. They had the time. <laughs> Storefront stickers, yep. Posters, definitely. Card sorts are great because they help pin down people's specific likes, dislikes, and opinions. Without having invested in prototyping or developing anything too involved, we already have a good sense about what gets people excited and also which ideas they really hate. Okay, <laughs> so tell, tell us about how, tell us about how you feel about this. Well, this sort of devalues the whole the whole thing, the whole point of doing it. I, I wouldn't judge anybody that, that, that did sort of splash it all over their business that they'd done this good thing. Um, 
I would want I would certainly want people to find out about it, but I'd want them to find out from the people that have benefited from it, and that they would just tell other people in their day to day life, hey, do you know what? I had a great experience down there. They were good guys. Go meet them. They'll they'll hopefully do the same for you. That's what I would like. That's what I would enjoy. But I, but publicising it on a on a on the front of the building or sticking it in the newspaper. No, it, it sort of cheapens the whole reason why you're doing it in the first place. The other thing that activities such as card sorts can really help with is making it easier to compare your interviews to one another. Here for their second appearance on the series are my fellow students from Hyper Island, Nat and Allie. Nat McCarthy, what is downloading? Um, what's downloading? So it's like kind of a huge brain dump of all that information from the interview. Um, and then you think that you can see from a designer that they might not necessarily have said, but it's kind of, if you can piece it together in your head or something kind of sparks and it's like, get that thing down. Alison Rome, what is downloading? Downloading is when you strip back an interview or a paper or whatever it is that you're looking at and pulling out all the necessary information that you want to take from it. That's a beautifully concise answer. Thanks. I'm, I'm really good at sound bites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I found it really, really good applying the sort of downloading process that, that, that I've normally applied to interviews to pull out information from other things such as like academic papers and even blog posts and things like that and videos. It's really interesting and then I can sort of compare the information that I'm getting from each one and it's all in the same format, which has been really easy and nice. So it's basically just a technique for pulling out the meaningful information from some source. It could be an interview or it could be a paper or an experience. Exactly, yeah. Different design companies have different ways of doing this. There's, for example, the AEIOU framework, which Nick told me about. A is for activity, E is for environments, I for interactions, O for objects, and U for users. You take all your interviews and you sort what you learned and noticed into those categories, A-E-I-O-U. At Hyper Island, we learned a technique from IDEO designer Matt Cooper-Wright, which is to distill each interview into observations, problems, needs, opportunities, and quotes. Plot likes to create these custom visual maps. You can almost imagine a coloring book, where there's a blank grid or some circles where you can fill in certain details from the interview, tailored to the subject matter or the goals of the project. Regardless of which post-interview download technique you use, there's usually a fair amount of post-it notes involved. The reason for this is that ideally, downloading and synthesizing your interviews is something that happens in a team. Working in a team is really a lot easier when you have walls to look at instead of tables. And movable, revisable post-its instead of poster paper or even a whiteboard that's harder to collaboratively revise, move, edit, shift, and play around with. Because business owners were so easy to get a hold of, it let us progress pretty far in terms of refining our idea and retesting it. I mocked up a fake webpage for a fake service called the Inclusive Business Network. 
I used the feedback from the first batch of business owners to write the copy and make up a list of pretend offerings. This website was basically a prop that I could bring into interviews with people, put it in front of them and see how they react. Okay, so this is something for you to look at. I'm not looking for you to say, you know, give me a pat on the back and say, oh, your idea is great. I'm looking for you to be very honest about your reaction to what you see. If you can try to like read out loud or think out loud if you can so that it can capture your thoughts on the microphone. Um, and yeah, let me know your very sincere thoughts on this. So is this a fully working website already? No, it's just a mock-up. Okay. Ah, cool. No, it's very, uh, it's very clear. It's laid out, it's clear, it's easily read. I like the amount of people on it as well. It makes it personal. It's not just pictures of, I don't know, businesses. It's actual people, isn't it? Are these all people you've met? Those are stock photos. Okay. <laughs> Just reading all about it first. You have more to offer than you think. Giving back doesn't need to mean writing a check, offering simple, offering simple, low-cost things like a meeting space. Your knowledge or acting as a community liaison between customers can can really help you and those around you. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, it's not just about making sales. Definitely not. I think when you see, maybe you see someone or a business doing something like a charity program or giving when people put on courses or days or whatever or go to a place to teach skills I think sometimes people may be interested in going well how do you actually how does that work how do you facilitate that it's interesting it seems like something that would be very useful to a lot of people next up from the land of research findings the community loan idea here's Jill what is the community loan idea so the idea is that because there are so many uh, massive loans with AP, high APRs, so those kind of payday loans or emergency loans for people, they are really, really high APR. They're possibly useful for those people that can manage them really well. But for the majority of people, that APR is huge and really affects them quickly. So thinking about... Uh, on the line of a crowdfunding model, what if we had a neighbourhood fund that was purely there for emergency loans for local people? And so we're exploring whether it matters whether you know them or not, how you might want to be paid back, whether there should be interest or not, and whether actually you want to be credited or not. So we put out a basic web survey with questions like, can you give us an idea of how much spare cash that you might lend to something or someone? How much interest do you think should be paid for such a loan? And the results? People do want to do it. You know, all the people that we asked are happy to do it. A lot of them think that there should be no interest, but definitely low interest if there is any. Most of them don't want a big, you know, hoo-ha about the fact they've contributed. They do want, um, at most, a thank you card. But that's it. They really don't want a big, big praise. Um, and I think an overwhelming sense that they want to do it. That's what really, I was really enthused by. So we got 12 responses and they all wanted to do it. What do you think are people's motivations in wanting to participate or wanting to loan money where they get nothing back financially? I think part of it is selfish that if they needed it, it would be there. And that makes a lot of sense. And then also that 
altruistic aspect, which is that it actually hurts people when they don't get the little bit of money that covers them between starting a new job or a little crisis in the family. Um, and it's scary. So there's a lot of empathy out there, I think, for people who, who suddenly find themselves in difficult times. It seems like we're finding a lot of altruism in this project overall, wouldn't you say? Right. You know, you scratch the surface and there are these people with some really, really deep ethics and, and really uh, connected sense to people around them. And that's in London where that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> yeah. We interrupt these research findings for a special segment. Power Dynamics. I've been thinking a lot about power dynamics lately. I recently learned about a very interesting social impact project. It handles the issue of power dynamics and economic inequality in a really unusual and very smart way. It's a project called the Salford Poverty Truth Commission. Here's Joyce Kay, their director of Community Pride, speaking to the audience at their kickoff event. The key principle the Salford Poverty Truth Commission is an 18-month project that's modeled off similar projects in Glasgow and Leeds. What they do is really simple. They have two groups of 15 people. 15 of them are business people and politicians, the public life commissioners. The other 15 people are individuals with first-hand experience of poverty, the grassroots commissioners. The idea is simply for these two groups to get to know each other. They do this through big group meetings where people take turns telling their stories, and they also do more intimate things like going for coffee together in pairs. The commissioners are also in charge of decision-making for the project. Joyce and her co-director Sarah Whitehead are simply just facilitators. Here's Sarah speaking at that same event. With this project, we're not going to be telling people what poverty is, and we're not going to be promising to solve all the problems of poverty and say that we are fully representative and have all the answers. That's not what it's about. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to share with you some of our real, deep experiences of poverty in the hope that it will help to increase people's understanding. You must always do it with people and for them. Because nothing about us without us is for us. The Poverty Truth Commission is basically an open-ended experiment. What happens when people in positions of power and people with first-hand expertise on the lived experience of poverty sit down and really get to know each other? Here's Paul Dennett, the city mayor. So often do we hear statisticians, policy people talk about poverty in numerical terms, in process terms, in strategic terms, as though they have some sort of monopoly on the lived experiences of people within cities up and down this country. The reality is that is not the case. Poverty is about lived experiences, as we've already heard. It's about understanding what people actually are going through within their homes, within their communities, and within their lives, and then trying to translate that experience into solutions, hopefully. And for me, I guess, 
the real challenge is about how we move away from this kind of systems-based approach where it's about institutions working with each other, designing processes and policies and procedures, to actually allowing the people within our communities to tell us what it is we need to do. Ever since I first heard about Salford Poverty Truth a few weeks ago, I can't stop thinking about it. What they're doing is so simple yet so, so powerful. So related to this, there's this image I saw on Twitter lately. It's a little flyer produced by an organization called TLAP. Think local, act personal. It shows a little ladder. At the bottom rungs of the ladder are these words. Coercion, education. Those two rungs on the ladder are labeled as doing two, trying to fix people who are passive recipients of service. Next, moving up on the ladder are informing, consultation, engagement. Those three words, informing, consultation, engagement, are labeled as doing four, engaging and involving people. And the last two on the ladder are co-design and co-production. Co-design, co-production, doing with, in an equal and reciprocal partnership. In our current project, I think, we're somewhere in the middle of that ladder, hovering between consultation and maybe, if I'm optimistic, engagement. Think Local, Act Personal has done a lot of great little images and graphics that are available on their website. Here's a quote from one graphic explaining exactly what co-production is. The term co-production refers to a way of working whereby everybody works together on an equal basis to create a service or come to a decision which works for them all. It is built on the principle that those who use a service are best placed to help design it. The question is, uh, what, do, what do you think about co-production as opposed to just basic interviews like we're doing? Um, the use of it, uh, I think it depends on the circumstances. Uh, I, I think uh, they're both uh, valid techniques that you use at different points in, in, a de in making progress in a design process. There's a lot of religious faith in certain methods, I think, that shows up in, in design circles that where, you know, co-production is the only way or, uh, you know, uh, the IDEO method or, you know, brainstorm first, then you know, interview, and uh, I think you've got, you've got to um, fit the right method to the right circumstances. It'd be nice to get the chance to <laughs> on this one. Oh, we was talking about some of the uh, the concerns we had from one of the projects where we'd had a user in with us in the pro in the process, and how that made it a bit made it strange because they thought their view was the only view. Yes, but I think the, the when you get to do really good co-design, it's fantastic. Next up in this special segment, power dynamics. I want to talk about this thing that anthropologists and ethnographers call studying up. Remember our ethnographer friend, Sarah Hall, from episode two? Here she is again. What is studying up? Studying down, as in studying um, 
everyday life and society's ordinary, you know, ordinary lives as they're lived. Um, studying up instead involves studying above, so perhaps studying the same institution that you might be part of, or uh, universities, I mean, or studying maybe elites, um, or study, yeah, studying uh, corporate business. So it's this kind of the idea of up and down. It speaks to uh, like a power hierarchy within society. I called up my old college buddy, Jesse Spector, who is the director of an organization called Resource Generation. Hello? Hey, is this Jesse? Hey, Katie. Hey, how are you? Pretty good. How are you? I'm good. What interests me so much about Resource Generation is the way they're studying up, in a way. Sure. Um, so we are... Uh, a network and a community organization. Um, we're a national nonprofit, um, and we operate out of um, chapters in 16 cities around the country. But our um, target demographic is, and people who you know come to our programs, are um, people who self-identify as people with wealth and class privilege, um, and are between the ages of 18 and 35. The theory behind resource generation is that um, there's all sorts of examples, but like sort of like Robin Hood or something, the idea that actually like wealthy people have a key role to play in making progressive social change. The thing that really stands out to me about resource generation is that, I mean, we went to a left of center progressive university and uh-huh. we both know lots of people who are have said, you know, let me use my position of privilege, let me use my education to do something good in the world. And I'm definitely included in that bucket of people. And I noticed that most people who who wake up in the morning and say, I'm, I want to do something good with my life, tend to go to the bottom of the pyramid for lack of a more... Um, mm-hmm more delicate way of saying it. And so what is so different, I think, about what resource generation is doing is that you've flipped that upside down and you're going to the top of the pyramid and you're saying, hey, mm-hmm. let's, let's look at where power and resources are concentrated and, and mm-hmm. think about changing behavior and changing systems there. Mm-hmm. And I think um, we need to be really, really rigorous with people who have privilege that we're not replicating patterns of privilege and oppression. You know, I have so many friends who are social workers and teachers um, and are working with communities that they're completely not from, don't live in, don't, don't have any context for, even though they mean the absolute best and are doing really the best they can in the situation they've been given. There still is a dynamic because of the way the system is set up of, um, of uh, this this person um, coming who has privilege coming into a community that they're not from and saying, I can help you, I have a solution in a way that is patronizing, in a way that is not empowering, and a way that is not actually changing the system that created such a stratification in the first place. We want to see um, a cadre of wealthy, young, wealthy people working in really meaningful, balanced, um, integral relationships with um frontline and oppressed communities working to make systemic change for social justice. And now, speaking of power dynamics, it's time to move on to our most hard-to-find group of interviewees, people who are experiencing poverty or have experienced it. 
It's been very difficult to find people who fit this profile who we can interview. We talked to organizations like Toynbee Hall and a few others. And the people working there wanted to help us, and they did their best. But in the end, we just didn't have anyone to interview. Why has recruitment been so hard? British people don't like talking about money. <laughs> it's a boo topic. It's they'd rather chew their arm off rather than reveal their own personal patterns. It's even worse than sex. They'd rather talk about sex than talk about money. So in order to get people to talk about money, it needs to be a very particular situation that, that you need to craft and set up. And I don't know if we've managed to craft and set up that situation, especially with strangers. I think that you might be helping me realize why I'm going down this road of exploring and researching co-production, because I'm thinking about the lack of connection that we've had with users probably because of this taboo and stigma that you're talking about and thinking, you know, how could that have gone differently? Some of the things I've been reading about co-production say like is to bring users on from the beginning and have them like literally in the project on the project for the whole project, like as a peer. And mm -hmm. I wonder if that changes the power dynamic in the researcher research ed dynamic so that there's more openness and there's more sharing and there's just you can get more work done together if you have more of a camaraderie setting those circumstances up mm. is extraordinarily difficult yeah of course because of the um the time commitment to it it's it's something that uh is kind of easier to do in a kind of a university research context mm -hmm. or perhaps uh, if you've got big corporate dollars behind you. Mm -hmm. I think it's quite difficult as a, uh, as a small design agency to do much more than sample. It might not be the kind of insight we thought we would deliver to the fields quote-unquote, but it's a good one. Like, hey, if you're a researcher thinking of going into this topic, mm. prepare for a very long trust-building period before you can have any interviews. Yes, yes. And invest in that. Yeah, mm. so that's, that's, that's my little graph. We did actually have one interview with someone experiencing poverty or something close to it. And good news, there are three more interviews on our horizon. Still not exactly on the calendar, but we're getting there. Here's a bit of reflection on that one interview we did have. There was this really, really clear code, if you like, which was, don't spend more than you have, which sounds incredibly obvious, but it really drives him. His juggling activities are around that. Mm. So they're small, they're light. They're things like making a little bit of cash back on a transaction. He's become very, very expert at, at finding deals and uh, comparison websites and cash back websites mm -hmm. and all this kind of stuff. And in developing that as a skill, uh, he's been able to, in effect, boost his income. You, you need some digital skills in being able to tell the difference between bullshit and real stuff mm. which which he's developed over the years and that stuff's not told this is a savvy yeah thing isn't it 
Do you think this goes against the, because we've read so many like more high level reports that say uh, financial literacy, savvy, know-how is not the antidote to poverty. Mm. How do you feel about that? I think, well, I think it helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think online access helps. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it helps you to search for deals or to to get a lower price, people that don't have that digital access mm-hmm. would, be, would be really stifled, I think, in, in terms of, of finding the deals. I wonder, too, if the policy types are saying financial literacy is not the answer on the systemic level. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps on an individual level, it could help some people escape poverty or avoid like really drastic plunges into poverty. Yeah. Right. But on a systemic level, there are bigger problems going on that kind of keep poverty entrenched. Yeah, yeah I think I think it's definitely a yes and thing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of these things are playing their parts. Mm-hmm. So there you have it. Research and results. It's still all a work in progress. Speaking of work in progress, on November 16th, we're going to present all of this stuff and more in an open house workshop kind of format to anybody who'd like to come and visit our studio. You're invited. Get in touch with me on Twitter at interkady and I'll share the details with you. The next episode will be the last one of this season. It'll be about closure and it will be all about that open house and what we learn from it. Don't miss it. The At Your Service theme song is by Rob Roosley. In this episode, we used additional music from Rob Roosley and Thad Wenichi. This episode also used sound effects under the Creative Commons Attribution License from freesound.org users Neuronex, Broken Phono, Copycat, and Inspector J. Thank you for listening and see you in one week for the season finale.